every time you do something which contributes to the culture of overwork in your life, like not having a lunch break, like starting really early and finishing really late, like looking at your emails at the weekend, like allowing the blurring of the boundaries all of the time, you are robbing yourself of something to which you are fundamentally deserving. Before we start today's episode, I'd love to share a podcast recommendation with you that I've been listening to recently, Sliding Doors with Jenny Becker. Based on her love of the 90s movie classic Sliding Doors, the podcast explores the fascinating theory of those what-if moments and decisions that shape our lives. Each episode delves into three moments from her guests' lives, where they chat about how they built that path of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. She's hosted some amazing guests, such as Bradley Walsh, Jeanette Manrara, Rachel Stevens, and recently interviewed Sarah Lindsay, Olympian, personal trainer, and owner of the fitness company Raw. Head over to Apple, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms to listen to Sliding Doors. Today's 40-minute mentor is the brilliant Rebecca Seal, a true multi-hyphenate. Rebecca is a highly regarded journalist who's worked at newspapers like The Observer, a TV presenter who is featured as the food and drink expert on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch Show, the podcast host of The Solo Collective, and she's an author of many books, including her most recent bestseller, Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. In today's episode, we talk about the crucial skills you need for a career in broadcasting, Rebecca shares her advice on how to build a successful freelance career. We explore what solo working actually does to the human mind and why loneliness can be linked to the environment you create for yourself. I absolutely love talking to Rebecca and found her approach to work and life simply refreshing. I know I've taken a lot of advice from my conversation with her, so I can't wait for you to listen to the next 40 minutes. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Rebecca Seal. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Not at all. Well, we always like our listeners to get to know you firstly through a quick fire group of questions. So if you don't mind finishing these sentences after me, that'd be great. Hit me. <laughs> okay, let's do it. When I was younger, I always wanted to be... Oh, um, I wanted to work in international organisations. I thought I was going to work for the UN. Ah, that's a really good one. Okay. Uh, we'll come on to why that didn't happen shortly. Okay. But uh, <laughs> my first job was... Oh, waitress. I was a waitress for a long time. Classic. Classic first job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did the waiting and uh, was not very good at it, to be honest with you. When starting my career, I wish I'd have known that it's a long game and that you don't have to get it all right at the beginning and that you probably won't end up doing what you want to do at the beginning. That I wish I'd known that. I would have enjoyed the first few years a lot more if I hadn't felt disgruntled about what I was doing and terrified that I'd never get to do what I wanted. That is so true. That is so true. The, the impending doom of 50 years of doing the same thing is, is, is can be a bit depressing. But now I think there's probably three or four different careers you can have over the course of one career. So um, yeah, that's, that's a great one. Last two, I'm most energized at work when I'm... Uh, well slept. 
which is a rare, a rare occurrence. But that really fundamentally affects my ability to feel energetic in life as a whole, but particularly about the work that I'm doing. I couldn't agree more. And commiserations to any new parents out there right now who are seriously sleep deprived. <laughs> and finally, can you share something that we wouldn't know from your CV that could be a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned from? I think that the failures are, yeah, gosh, I've kept them really quiet. So there's lots of book proposals that I've done that haven't turned into books. Those are things that I don't intend to publicize <laughs> just because there's nothing to publicize. So yeah, those are the things I think, the ideas that happen that nobody wants. <laughs> and then I guess you're not going to be wasting your time. Is there anything else that you take from that? I mean, you have to put quite a lot of effort into doing the book proposal. It's maybe a quarter of a book or a fifth of a book sometimes to, to do it. So that can be quite galling. But yeah, you can always learn from it. But even if you're only learning what the market wants and how it isn't True. you... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really good one. And I know that you have, and we'll come on to talk about, you've written a number of books. So uh, I know many of them have gone on to be very, very successful. And we're going to talk about that shortly. So thank you. I feel like we've already got a good little glimpse into, into your background, Rebecca. But before we discuss your advice for working alone and, and working from home, which we're going to cover in quite a lot of detail, I wanted to just talk a bit about your very varied career today and some of the lessons you've learned along the way. I think it's safe to say you are a true multi-hyphenate. You've, you've worked as a features food and drink writer. You've been on TV. You have your own podcast. You've authored nine books, I think. So, so many incredible achievements. Was that always the plan to have this kind of very varied portfolio career? And how did you kind of make those different moves over, over the different disciplines? No, it wasn't a plan. I don't think I had a plan, which may or may not have been a good idea. I, I'm never quite sure whether that's been a help or a hindrance. At 40 now, things are in a good place. <laughs> and they probably have been for the last 10 or 12 years. But I would say during my 20s, I felt really kind of adrift. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware that actually what I was doing which was in the main working for a newspaper, I wasn't aware that I was laying the groundwork for all the future stuff. And it felt quite kind of hard scrabble. I felt like I was working really hard in a job that I couldn't really quite see the direction from. I wasn't sure where I would be able to go next from it. And I felt like maybe I was kind of backing myself into a corner, which retrospectively was completely the opposite of what I was doing but that isn't how it felt at the time because I was working on the food desk at a at a newspaper and I was worried that I was kind of really narrowing my focus and getting pigeonholed and that I'd never be the feature writer that I wanted to be and podcasting wasn't even a thing then really so you know that that didn't even occur to me it was kind of like there was tv there was radio and print and I desperately wanted to write more and I wasn't writing very much and what I was writing wasn't really what I wanted to write and I just didn't realize that actually through all of the things that I was doing, I was learning a craft and that that craft, which is just what I do is just make information available for other people in ways that they want to consume it. You know, that all of what I do is that. So in a way, there is at least a kind of an umbrella overarching everything that I do. And I just I just didn't realize that that was what I was being taught to do by people who were really brilliant at it. So I was I was in a really, really lucky position. I mean, I'd worked very hard to get there, but for all this sort of panic that I had, I didn't know what I was doing and where I'd go next. That was actually the bedrock for everything else. And then I went freelance. I took voluntary redundancy from the newspaper and 
then I don't know, things just started to kind of, I was just open to so much more at that point and things just started to arrive. So I was invited to work for Soho House as an editor, freelance. And then I got scouted to do the TV show Sunday Brunch by somebody who's looking for a woman who wrote about drink, which I did at the time. And it all kind of crazily went from there. So it's more about openness to stuff, I think, rather than any specific plan. And in fact, I'd failed to get so many TV jobs that when I went for the Sunday brunch one, which I didn't even know was for Sunday brunch because it was all confidential, I was so blasé about it because I was so like, well, I've done like five of these and nobody ever wants me to do television. So it's clearly not going to happen. I was completely relaxed didn't have any fear in the initial interviews because it was just so obvious to me that this was just going through the motions and would never result in anything. Um, so it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> no, that, that's really interesting. I, and I've heard that quite a lot from people going for jobs. They're just like, they knew who else was interviewing and they just like, oh, I, I don't even know what the point in turning up is, but I'm just going to just go there and enjoy the experience. And actually, some of the best things come from just, just being yourself and relaxed. And so that's really interesting. And I love the point about being open to stuff. I think so often imposter syndrome gets in the way and we just kind of like, why would I? Oh, there's no point. Whereas actually, if you just kind of, it's karma, isn't it? You just, if you're just open to doing things or having conversations and taking conversations, then it's amazing what can come from them. So that's really, that's really interesting. And I think when you go freelance, that's kind of a natural step. You just have, you have to be open to stuff because you're inevitably looking for stuff to do and people to pay you. So it's kind of a, it's like a default mode rather than the more difficult way of doing it, which is to somehow be open to new opportunities whilst already being employed in a specific role and not wanting your LinkedIn profile to be like, hey, yeah, looking for a new job. <laughs> I hope nobody <laughs> yeah. I work with now reads it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. No, that's, 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 that's absolutely right. Would you say there's been a specific role or an area that you've worked in that you found much more difficult to the others? I know they're kind of interlinked, but as you've said, it's kind of the way it's evolved for you. But was there one area that you've struggled with? I mean, I think writing solo, which was my first long form book, as it were, rather than recipe books, which is what I've always done before, was probably the biggest single challenge of my career to date. And I look at it now, and I flick through it sometimes, and I cannot believe that I wrote it. Like, I almost don't remember writing it because it's so, it's, it's like a proper thing. <laughs> and it's, that's kind of extraordinary. It's like, how did that, where did that come from? And I, I found that, yeah, the hardest, definitely the hardest thing that I've ever done. I mean, individual struggles are different. I guess there are pieces that I've worked on, newspaper articles in particular, where the standard that you're trying to hit is incredibly high because you know the other people, the other writers who are being used. And you know that they're kind of turning in stuff of incredibly high quality. And then I also was the person to whom that stuff was turned into when I worked at the newspaper myself. So there's a kind of, I don't know, a bit of an imposter syndrome situation. So I can sometimes get myself tied in knots about things, particularly if they're quite scientific issues that I'm talking about. I'm terrified of making mistakes and the fact checking process after you submit something can be quite intense. So I've definitely had moments where I'm like lying awake in the middle of the night thinking, oh my God, it's getting published <laughs> tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I mean, 
and I've I've got some of your the books that you the, the Leon cookbooks that I know being contributed to you, and I've just bought Solo, which you're gonna talk about, so I can't wait to read that. But it's there are very competitive industries to be in. You know, being a, a journalist, being a broadcaster, and notoriously, yeah, difficult. So do you have any advice for anyone listening to this that kind of is hearing this going like that's what I've always wanted to do and, and may have been put off to date by the reputation? What what are your tips and advice for people that might be aspiring to follow suit? I mean, it's tricky because I get asked this a lot by by people, you know, who email me or, or want to be mentored. And there isn't really a straight answer because I think that for the majority of people now going into it as a career, you will be going into it in a slightly random way. So I think a level of openness to different paths in is probably a really good idea. The other thing is that you just have to be incredibly humble at the beginning because the lower level jobs in broadcasting or in editorial are just crap. <laughs> and, you know, there's just a lot of organizing other people's train tickets and booking ferries and sending newspaper clippings over. I mean, obviously they're done digitally now, but I used to have to collect them in envelopes. That's how old I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> For some of the writers we had who weren't prepared to do online research of their own, you had to get it on paper and then post it to them, which was amazing. But yeah, so I think, again, that's something I think I wish I'd known more was that although I was fully prepared to do anything to get into the industry in terms of the different kinds of jobs that I was prepared to do and how low level I was prepared to go in, I quite quickly began to feel a bit sort of put upon. And I'm not sure that was a particularly useful emotion to have because ultimately I needed to do that time. I needed to prove that I was committed. I needed to prove that I was worthy of the opportunities, but I also needed to learn a huge amount about how everything worked. And I think a lot of people, and I saw this a lot with work experience, people who would come and work with me, a lot of people would have really high expectations. And I, I remember very frequently people would say to me, when am I going to get to write my first article? And I'd say, well, I haven't yet. And I've been here for two years. So right. it's probably so not really going to happen in this 10-day block. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I think you, you, it is a bit of a symptom of, of new generation coming through and, and live today where everything is kind of here and now and you want things to happen quickly but I think with careers I am a bit old school in the fact that I, I'm not saying you shouldn't move jobs after two years or anything but there is something to be said for learning your craft whether it's working in journalism or whether it's in consulting or you're in a startup but actually doing the time learning from really good people uh, and and proving yourself it does give employers uh, a greater sense of comfort that you've seen something through you've stuck it out you've been through some tough times you've got some stories to tell so i think there is something to be said for especially at the early part of your career of of doing some of the less glamorous bits because it also you know you appreciate it more when you when you progress yeah yeah and it just it just allows you to learn the ropes i mean it just gives you the opportunity to witness other people at higher levels operating in lots of different ways over a longish period of time and if you're kind of attuned to it then you can just absorb what they're doing and how they're doing it and all the ways that they manage relationships for better or for worse and all that stuff like i just hadn't I just didn't know any of that. And I and I think actually one of, that's one of the failings in how we, and maybe it's better now, but I don't think it is from talking to younger people. That's one of the failings in how we transition people from education into work in the UK, in that we just don't teach people about what a career might look like. And we don't teach them about how we learn in a career. 
you know, I left the London School of Economics with this like super inflated view of where my place in the world was going to be. And for about 50% of the people I graduated with, that view was then upheld. And they did end up going to work straight away for McKinsey or PwC or the Foreign Office or whatever. But for the rest of us, we all got turfed out into the world with two ones or whatever and told to just make our own way. And we all thought we were like absolutely the business because we'd got this really good degree, but the world didn't care at all. And then we had to figure it out, which is probably very good for us and probably made us all much nicer yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there I do think we could have done with a bit of, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but we could have done with a little bit of guidance. And I just think kind of from a, from a maybe more sort of cultural point of view, we don't, we mm-hmm. don't do that very well. I think it's a really good point actually. And, and, you know, I've, I've gone into some schools, my old school doing some career talks and stuff. And I think there is, I feel like there is more that can be done societally to prepare the future of, you know, the, the kids of today and the future in, in all businesses, just, just like a more realistic view. I think that's really important and actually to help kind of coach and guide them. So they actually know the right sort of thing to go into because so, so many of us fall into jobs that we're probably not meant to do or be and actually won't really fulfill us at all. And now there is so much opportunity out there. It feels like just maybe bringing business and schools closer together, you could achieve a lot and solve some of the big talent gaps that we hear about all the time. But that, that's maybe for another another podcast. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to talk about your, your CV because when I, you know, when I look through your background, you just, you especially now you've got a portfolio career, there's just so much variety. And I know you have a family as well. So how have you managed to balance it? Because uh, I'd imagine there would have been some serious plate spinning and sacrifices over the years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there have been some really difficult times. I would say the sacrifice stuff, I am less comfortable with the notion that you have to make sacrifices as such. I think for me, I mean, I so let me backtrack a bit. Six or seven years ago, I did get to a point before I had kids, I did get to a point where I was burnt out. And that's really why I ended up writing solo. And we, we can talk about that later. But the, my balance was off then, like way off. I was working six days a week at least evenings, you know, obviously weekends, and I just didn't have much of a life apart from work. And so the plate spinning then definitely got a bit out of hand. And the sacrifices were really kind of relationships and family. And I have managed that much better, particularly since having kids, because I moved to doing a four day week, which just made me a lot more efficient with my time, because I just have specific bits of time, which are for work. And they're very, very kind of tightly bound. You know, they start after I drop the kids off and they finish when childcare finishes and there isn't much mucking about space. So that really helped me to kind of focus in a bit more of a lasered way about how I work. And I've also just got better at saying no to things I really don't want to do. (laughs) You know, for the first, yeah, for the first six or seven years of being freelance, I was so desperate to become established and so desperate to not offend any potential or existing client I just said yes to everything and that included quite a large amount of work that I didn't want to do so some of the stuff you see in my CV you might think oh wow that's amazing that she's got so many you know things going on but but there were definitely projects that I did none of the bigger ones and certainly none of the books but there are definitely projects along the way that I did which I don't feel good about from a sort of moral point of view or I just don't feel like I did the thing well that I wasn't necessarily the right person for it 
or that it in some way took me away from from my kids at a moment when I, I shouldn't have been away from them. And I've just, as I've got older, I've got a lot better at just thinking, what's the motivation behind this? If it's a really well paid something that I don't want to do and we need money at that particular point, then okay, fine, you know, let's think about it. But broadly speaking, I try and think, is this actually something that feels right, that feels fulfilling, that doesn't take me away from the family too much, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the juggle. And I mean, I've turned down some proper jobs in the in the past few years. I've turned down some pretty prestigious actual roles in favor of staying freelance, more because of that flexibility and the fact that I can make choices rather than kind of being stuck in somebody else's framework. But also just to add, I think the idea of balance is something of a myth. I think it's, it's <laughs> and it's not a necessarily particularly helpful trope to have. Like it doesn't really work to think that we're ever going to have balance usually it's life isn't it yeah, it's exactly. just life yeah and life doesn't feel balanced you know something will be off so i i sometimes feel that making people have any expectation that either they can have it all or that they can have a work life balance or whatever is just it you know it doesn't work like that and for most of us it's a daily process of trying to figure out which bits fit in which in where and it's it is all unbalanced and sometimes it feels not just unbalanced but unhinged yes (laughs) that's so true and that's fine that's human and that's normal and when it becomes too far out of balance that's when work has overtaken you and it, it you know it's taking you away from your real life but that you know it doesn't have to be like that we just but we do sort of we glorify overwork so much in this modern culture and we are so good at making it seem as though work is the most important and sort of salient thing about you as an individual that it's very easy to think the work has the right to take up more space in your life than it should and that's where unbalanced feelings get really out of control yeah a lot of what you said resonates with me I think I've always struggled with saying no to work stuff I guess it's that thing when you I set up JV when I was 25 and frankly I was going to work on anything to keep the lights on in the first few years just to like make sure I could myself and 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 as part of that you kind of our business is growing through word of mouth and therefore when we get stuff through those fantastic referrals it's really hard to say no because you're like oh wow someone's taking the time to reach out because they've heard about us or you know uh, we've worked with them in the past but actually it's I found recently uh, we're relatively light on the ground at the moment with holidays and various other things given it's the summer and actually by being really honest and saying no actually sometimes you gain even more respect by saying that so i think i think that's a good lesson for us all just you know to not try and be everything to everyone because it's just not realistic well yeah and i think saying so honestly and saying i've got too much on or i wouldn't do this well for you because i i can't fit it into the schedule i've had clients come back 6 months down the line and say is this a better time for you now or can we look at this next year or whatever so it's a really difficult thing to do the very first time you you do it to say i'm not going to do this but once you've started it's like a muscle that you can strengthen and the kind of consequences are much more varied than you might think. It's not like that client disappears in a puff of smoke every time. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I wanted to just talk a bit about freelancing. I mean, I'm my own boss and I love the freedom that comes with that, albeit there is the, the pressure as well. But I know some people will hear that word freelance and then they'll break out in a cold sweat at the idea <laughs> of this, you know, the, the, the perilous nature of not having a full-time gig. What kind of traits do you think you need to thrive as a freelancer? And what would you say are the biggest benefits for you and, and the pitfalls that come with that lifestyle? I mean, traits wise, I think it's all trainable. Like, I think you can learn to thrive as a freelancer. You know, yes, you need a certain amount of self-reliance and a certain amount of grit and a certain amount of determination. But those are all, again, muscles that you can train. So if you don't think of yourself in that way, there's no reason why you can't morph yourself into somebody who does manage that stuff. I think you need to be somebody who's got kind of an emotional awareness of what they need outside of work. I think that's, and again, that's something you can train, but I, th- I think that's more critical for freelancers than it is for people who are in offices because when you're freelance, not necessarily always, but for most of us, you lack that sort of ready-made social infrastructure that surrounds the way that you work in an office. And you need to think about what it is that you need. Like maybe you don't need a replica of that in your life. Maybe you just need three other people who you're really close to, or maybe it's five, or maybe it's 10, or, you know, whatever it is. But I think the people who thrive most are the people who create the support networks and the kind of social structures that they need around them so that they're not I mean, it's literally how I started my book. Like, if you work alone, don't be alone. (laughs) Like, don't just sit staring at a wall or a screen or a desk or a worktop for the entire day. You need to have social connections and interactions with other humans because that's what we're built for. And in the end, feeling that you're socially isolated and then feeling lonely as a result of that that stuff which makes working by yourself really difficult. I mean, it makes working just in and of itself really difficult. But yeah, so I think I think it's about knowing what you need specifically to prevent any sensation of loneliness. I think that's that's a really a really helpful thing. And people always say to me, "Oh, you must be so motivated, you know, to work by yourself." I just sit on the te- on the sofa and watch telly all day. And I mean, a, I think we all know that's not true after the pandemic. Like, I think that we all know that th- that we can be self motivated when we're by ourselves. But I, and you it, can it was, get bored of Netflix. Yeah, shopper, exactly. But, <laughs> but it but it was. I just I think it was always nonsense because, you know, I have to pay my mortgage. Like, I have to be able to buy food. If I don't work, that stops happening. So it's, you know, I am motivated to do the work that I do, but it's not as though there was ever any chance of me sitting around in my pajamas. And that's true for, you know, 99% of all freelancers, because you just have to work in the same way that everybody else has to. And that's quite motivating, it turns out. I just wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to our sponsors for this series, Chipper Cash. The team have been on an incredible journey, having launched their borderless way to send money across Africa and beyond in eight countries so far, and are widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup. So go check them out at chippercash.com or tune in to our 40-minute mental episode with their co-founder and CEO, Ham Serenjoji. I want to come on to talk about your latest book, Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. You started writing this pre-pandemic, but it literally, I mean, it couldn't be more suitable for everything we've had to go through in the last sort of 18 months, two years. So tell us a bit about where the book idea came from 
And if there was one thing, I mean, I hope everyone will go out and buy it, but if there's one thing to take away from reading it, what do you hope that will be? So I started writing it in, well, yeah, I actually started writing it in 2014. I got the book deal in 2019. I wrote the first bits of the proposal in 2014, and then I sat on it for five years, having kids, having IVF, basically being overtaken by events, which make book writing quite difficult. And then my agent happened to be having lunch with a publisher who was starting a new list of personal development books. And he mentioned this idea, which he and I had been talking about, you know, for even longer than before 2014. And she really liked it. And so that's how the that's how that came about. And I so I started writing it in the summer of 2019. And I finished writing it in the first lockdown. And I just had no sense then of how long this would go on for and how many people would be sort of sucked into solitary working. I mean, obviously, by the time I was finishing writing it, it was clear that people were going to be doing this for a while and people were going to be working at home. But the sort of massive shift that's happened in working practices and that I think will sustain to a greater or lesser extent, I don't think that the nine to five Monday to Friday is going to be as solid of a thing as it, as it has been historically any longer. And I wrote it because I was miserable. I wrote it because I just wasn't coping with working by myself and I was losing my mind. And i figured that there would be people out there in the world who knew how to avoid that. And I also figured that if I was feeling that way, then there would be many, many other solitary working people who would be feeling the same. Again, it was, it was at the time it was conceived of, it was more like, okay, this would be a book that sells a few hundred copies a year to freelancers. And, you know, and that would be a nice thing that will feel like a worthwhile and worthy thing to do. And then 2020, that made things a bit different. So it's now been translated into seven other languages. It came out in the US and North America. It's out in Australia and New Zealand. It's, you know, like it's, it's nuts. And that's not what any of us, the publisher or me, my agent, none of us were expecting that. And then to have started the podcast, The Solo Collective, to talk more about the issues around what it's like to have a career by yourself. That's been a, like a massive mad privilege as well. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I, I, we'll, we'll talk a little about, about the podcast in a minute, which uh, I've had the pleasure of being on. You have, and you were and, brilliant. Um, well, thank you. But I think it's just, I mean, talk about fate. I mean, one, to create a book that's just so important and relevant at a time where a lot of people really, really need it. And then then a podcast to do the same. I think we, I, I've seen the power and the importance of podcasting, just not just through the 14-minute mental, but, but through all the ones I've listened to over lockdown. It has helped me no end, just in terms of listening to people that inspire me, Sometimes when I'm feeling a bit low, listening to something that lifts me up and, and gives me other ideas or, or just kind of makes me laugh, like I just the different ways you can consume media now, just I think it is a really makes a difference to life and can have a big impact on your career. So firstly, massive congrats and kudos for how it's gone. I know when you were writing the book, you were keen to find out what actually is working solitarily, if that makes sense, solitary working actually does to the human mind. So can you tell our listeners a bit about what your research revealed? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's not actually that much research on solitude and there's even less on working by yourself. There's a certain amount on self-employment, but that's not necessarily the same thing as such. I, I wanted to know what, what actual solitude did. And it's really, it's really, what there is, is really interesting. So there's some stuff which suggests that solitude can, well, first of all, the biggest thing about solitude is that it's all about how you perceive it. So if you perceive it as a choice, then the effects are generally positive. 
if you perceive it as something which has been forced upon you, or if it literally has been forced upon you, then not so much on the positive side. And that's why solitary confinement has been used as a punishment for such a long time and why we saw people who kind of absented themselves from society and lived on the, you know, lived deep in the forest. And that's why, you know, we called them hermits or witches or whatever. Like it was, it was very other to, to do that, to make those choices and why we were slightly frightened of it. And, and yet if we choose it as a positive thing, then there's a few small studies that say that it enhances our ability to be creative, that we feel less inhibited, that we are more likely to come up with creative solutions to big problems. There's some work on teenagers who spend time alone and their kind of creativity and intellectual capabilities. So there's various things which show that being by yourself can do really good things for your brain. And and when I say creative, I'm not meaning in the creative industries necessarily, I'm just thinking about creativity as a whole. If you perceive yourself as socially isolated, it doesn't actually matter whether you are or not. So somebody who lives in a very isolated way in a, on an island of Scotland, for example, they might be physically isolated, but as long as they don't perceive themselves to be socially isolated, the chances are they won't feel lonely and they won't have the negative implications of loneliness, which we now know is as dangerous as smoking for our long-term health and is particularly dangerous for long-term brain health. But you can be, as I was, incredibly lonely and live in a very, very busy, overpopulated city like London. You're not physically isolated in any sense, but you feel deeply socially isolated. So those are the things that we're kind of learning about the way that being on your own affects your brain. It's not actually necessarily your physical environment. It's your brain's experience of it, your brain's perception of it. And I I found that really interesting. So one of the things that you can do with that information is to kind of try and reframe how you think about things. So if you are lonely, obviously, it's really important to take steps to alleviate your loneliness. But it's also worth thinking about the ways in which you are deeply connected to other people. So the, the chances are that if you work by yourself, you're not doing that in isolation. Like for me, for example, you know, I have editors, there are publicists who I, you know, get information from or who, who work on my projects. There are sub-editors, proofreaders, copy editors, designers, you know, photographers, there's the person I share an office with, there are the people who are in the office above and next to, and you know, the people I say hello to, there are the people who rent my photography studio, because it's another business I run with my husband. You know, there's, there's actually a lot of kind of social entwining that goes on around the work that I do, even though fundamentally, the majority of it is by myself in front of a screen. And the more that you can kind of focus on those things and maybe kind of exploit them, but also just make sure that they're uppermost in your mind, the less socially isolated you'll feel. And that can really kind of positively affect your feelings around loneliness. That's so great. And I guess apt for this podcast, but also having mentors that you can lean upon, talk to, use the sounding board in, in those moments when you feel a bit overwhelmed, perhaps, or just a bit bit lonely or isolated, then that's that's great. No, thank you so much for sharing that, Rachel. That's super, super helpful. Uh, on top of your latest book, we, we talked about the Solo Collective, your podcast. And I know that that has had, again, lots of listeners and has, has, will have had a massive impact. From all the people you've spoken to and the topics you've covered, one, has there been, a, and you don't have to say me, uh, has there been a particular guest that stood out or, 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 or topic that's been the most like really well received? And on top of that, is there any particular advice you would give to anyone that's or why they should tune into the podcast? What are they going to get from it? 
Gosh, that's interesting. I don't know if there's a particular one that's sort of stood out above all the others, just because I've come away from each one of them feeling slightly guilty, actually, and feeling as though I've just had a therapy session. Because often the questions that I'm asking are quite, they are quite personal questions, because they're usually around topics like anxiety or imposter syndrome. We've done episodes on how to create a brain and body friendly working environment for yourself. And they're just, they're just conversations with people who are such experts in this stuff that I, I'm always like, oh, right. Oh God, I didn't know that. Oh, oh, I'm going to change that. Or I'm going to adopt this. Or, you know, we did one about networking, um, which slightly touched on personal branding, which is one of those things that I'm just like, oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to do that. And I don't like the sound of it. And ooh. But she was really, it was Abadesi Osinsade. And she was so clever and neat about how she described it all that it all became terribly appealing and kind of yeah stopped me thinking that networking totally stopped me thinking that networking was all about kind of warm wine and plastic cups and and really awkward (laughs) encounters and yeah but then I don't know I've also been lucky to have people like um Henry Holland talking about the end of his relationship with his fashion label that had his actual name and how it felt to end a business relationship and and what you do to rebuild yourself when you've created something which is so intricately enmeshed with your own identity and then you have to leave it like how do you navigate any of that stuff so i don't know every one of the conversations has been brilliant i don't want to sound so arrogant every no, single no, episode no. has been brilliant <laughs> no that's great though but it's a bit like how i feel about this i mean i set the business up when I was quite young and I guess a, a lot of people would have longer careers or and uh, may have gone to uh, you got an MBA or whatever I kind of feel like the podcast is my mini MBA because yeah, I get right, to just exactly. pick the brains of brilliant leaders and, and learn from their stories and it just gives me that added bit of inspiration so I totally see what you mean that's like the privilege of being a journalist and then the added bonus of being a podcaster as well because fundamentally you can ask almost anybody, almost anything. Like, obviously, I wouldn't do the kind of Daily Mail paparazzi style questioning of people. But you're allowed to ask really, really nosy questions when you're a journalist. And when you're a podcaster, you're given open access to somebody for an hour in a very freeform way. And I mean, I think that's why I love it so much. It's just an extension of my incredibly nosy nature. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. I wanted to talk about, we, we talked obviously about the solo working and, and um, some great tips in there for freelancers. But I just want to talk about those of us that are in companies, working in offices, because I think you'll have worked in different offices over time, whether it's in your, your current one you share or, or when you've been in big newspapers. What are your thoughts? And was there any research you've done in terms of how modern offices should look going forward in a kind of post-pandemic world? And what, if any, changes would you like to see? Oh, so many changes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think we have to, and I think we are fundamentally reimagining what the point of an office is. And I do not believe that offices have any point if they are just full of people with headphones on to drown out the sound of the people around them typing into screens, which they could very easily have elsewhere. Like, I just do not see what the point of banks of desks is any longer. And I I couldn't have said that before the pandemic. I wouldn't have been able to think that clearly about it. But we've proved without a shadow of a doubt 
that people are able to work in spaces that are not offices. And in many, in many times, in many ways, they are much, much more efficient. There are obviously huge problems with the kind of the move to work from home and remote work. There are not problems, but there are issues which need to be resolved and thought about well in terms of creation of boundaries between work and home life and ensuring that people have enough space in which to work and making sure that people don't work just all the hours all of the time, um, because that's obviously a massive risk. But I think that this shift away from the focus on the nine to five is profound and positive because the practice of working from nine to five, Monday to Friday is is a hangover from the industrial revolution. I'm sure you've heard this stuff before and then was kind of condensed into what we have now in the in the early decades of the 20th century, primarily because of factory work. And then factory work just got mirrored by office work as more people moved into clerical jobs as well as into factory work. Because clerical work didn't really exist in the way that it did in the beginning of the 20th century before then. You know, most jobs were not based around offices and electrical lighting was the thing which allowed any of this stuff to happen. Because without that, everybody just had to work when it was light and then more or less stopped working when it wasn't light because it was almost impossible to work by candlelight in a really detailed way. Not impossible, but but in the main. And because so many jobs were based on agriculture. And then we lost that. We lost that lovely rhythm when electrical lighting started. And now we've got screens and it's much, much worse. So I think that this represents a massive opportunity for us to say, how do we make work human? How do we make it a human-centered endeavor? How do we make the spaces in which we work human-centered? Like, how do we work around people's actual bodies instead of what we think they need in order to work? Because one of the other things that we didn't realize until very recently was that office design, like traditional office design of the kind of white chrome steel, black, white kind of setup is really, really distracting to our brains. Like, we think that it's the right way of creating a space that's stripped back and doesn't distract our brains at all but actually the reality is our brains get incredibly antsy because that environment is deeply unnatural nothing like we would ever have experienced in 300,000 years of modern human history and freaks us out like really freaks us out so it makes us less efficient and less productive and there are loads of ways that you can create spaces which are much better for us from a from a mental health point of view but also physically better for us like not sitting down all day and that kind of stuff which is literally causing an epidemic of early deaths the sitting or sitting problem. So I just want to like grasp this moment, this opportunity so tightly. And I've done a lot of talks on this and I've talked to big organizations about it. And, you know, I hope to do a lot more of that kind of thing because we can make work better and we can make people work better. It's like, it's not a zero sum game. You know, we can gain a huge amount more from our workforce and they can have better lives at the same time. Like we don't have to squash everything out of people in order to achieve productivity so yeah, I mean, I could talk for hours Love on this. That. No, no, no. <laughs> I think it's brilliant, and we're seeing some great changes in, uh, you know, from our clients and what we've seen, uh, how we've seen companies ad- adapt uh, over lockdown and then change their working patterns forever, which has been great. And I think we had been all working a day from home already, come the lockdown, and now we're be three days out of the office, two days in a kind of hybrid model, but one with total flexibility. So no one is expected. We want FaceTime. We do want everyone to have some time together to, to kind of keep those connections strong and do things together as a team. But the general consensus in our business is, it is totally at discretion. And we have members of the team that are going to 
work and live abroad for a few weeks at a time and we don't want to give any reason for people not to want to enjoy work and ha- you know be able to do life as well just as we said earlier so i think it's i think it's really helped and i think people like yourselves sort of driving this agenda and holding companies to account a bit and going in and talking to them and and making sure that this isn't a flash in the pan i think is really important because it will change lives if we get it right and i think um we have that responsibility as business owners but it requires us to unlearn a whole bunch of things that we thought like the number of hours you work is equal to the amount that you produce you know that's the really fundamental kind of founding principle on the way that so many different businesses operate and it is just fundamentally false it's a lie it's 100% a lie it only tracks if you're a robot making parts on a factory line it just doesn't work for humans at all there's so much science and data to show that and yet often you know i talk to people or i read threads under articles about the four day week or whatever and and the comments are just like this is insane this is ludicrous everybody knows the more you work the more you get blah 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 and i'm just like you know face palm no no <laughs> everybody doesn't know that uh, because it's not true no it's true and i think it's something that i have learned the hard way in a way i mean I, I just used to work hours and hours and i still work long days don't get me wrong but that's more about my inability to structure like i struggle with like getting the right structure in play and i'm just like magpie do new things like and i haven't quite worked out even though i'm however many years into nine years into running this business i haven't found my perfect way of working yet and i'm still working on it but that I think, sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's a really critical thing to to accept is that this we will always be works in progress as far as this stuff goes. There will never come a moment where you're like, bing, I got it. I've got it absolutely nailed. And the same is true for me. The same is true for everybody because our lives change and our requirements change and our jobs change. And you just have to make the best of it as you go along. The important thing is to keep trying, but yes. it's not that we're ever going to reach a sweet spot where we're like, Okay, that's amazing. Because the thing is, work doesn't really suit humans. We're not really made for it. So it's <laughs> always it's always going to be problematic making our, you know, animal brains bend around a concept which no other animal does. Nothing, no, yeah. no other animal works. Like we're not made for it. We're not evolved for it. We've only been doing this stuff for 10,000 years. It's so true. And actually to the point about finding balance, I think whenever I do, like I, I, try, I try my best not to do too much work, like, once I close the laptop in the evening occasionally, but I try not to do too much and I try not to do any work at the weekends. And like, I try to, you know, have lunch breaks now. And these are things I didn't used to do, by the way. Um, so it's not, I, I'm still learning and evolving on this. But when you do get what better rest, you can perform better. Oh, yeah. When you do get balance and see friends and family and follow your passions, you know, you yeah, and switch off, you come back to work, you know, ready to go and you feel more motivated again. So it's just like, it's, it is so obvious, but we just fall into these traps that we've always fallen into over the years and we just keep just kind of grinding out and then then we burn out so yeah and it's like it's so obvious like the path is so repeated so well repeated so well trodden that it's so easy to see it happening again and again and again so when you hear this stuff you know to the people listening and when you hear this stuff like do your best to try and kind of take it in and act on it because overwork kills people and it, it robs people of their ability to have a life outside of work, which you deserve. 
you deserve far more than anything else, far more than a pay rise, far more than a corner office, far more than status, far more than wealth. You deserve to have a life. You deserve to have time with your family and with your friends and your children and, you know, whoever else counts to you. Those are the best bits of life. They are fundamentally the best bits. And so every time you do something which contributes to the culture of overwork in your life, like not having a lunch break, like starting really early and finishing really late, like looking at your emails at the weekend, like allowing the blurring of the boundaries all of the time, you are robbing yourself of something to which you are fundamentally deserving. And that breaks my heart. Wow, that's, uh, I mean, we're sadly at the end here, Rebecca, but that is a wonderful place to uh, get to our wrap up <laughs> questions because that is some really important but deep uh, message that I think I, well, I hope anyone listening to this will, will take that on board and, and I will do the same because I need to keep checking myself on some of this stuff. To I mean, so do I. Please don't think that I've got it all right either. You know? <laughs> no, but it's good for us to talk about it. It's good to talk about it and, and remind ourselves and, and, and encourage open conversation on these sorts of matters because it's um yeah we can easily fall into that trap of pre-pandemic life of just working 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 and it's important to live a little because life's too short right we need to quickly talk about the final three questions Rebecca because we always like to ask our guests these these final three questions and I'd love to hear your answers so first one is do you have a mentor and if you could be mentored by one person who would it be I don't have a specific mentor now. I've created a network of people who support me through different things, but I'm not sure any of them would necessarily say that they're my mentor. Although one person who probably should get an honorable mention is my agent, Anthony, because he saw something in me 17 years ago and he had to wait like 10 for me to get my first book deal. And I wrote some book proposals, which never went anywhere. I also took a really long time to write any of the book proposals at all. It'd be like years that he would have to wait just for the proposal. And then they didn't get picked up. So he stuck by me and kind of believed in me and coached me effectively for a really, really long time. Anthony Topping at Green and Heaton, I should say, to give him his full, <laughs> full due. <laughs> so he's probably the closest person I've had to a kind of career mentor there have been lots of other people along the way. Simon Rimmer at Sunday Brunch, the chef on Sunday Brunch or presenter on Sunday Brunch now, he has been very supportive and very full of kind of wisdom. And then my first boss at The Observer, Nicola, she effectively taught me everything I know about journalism because I didn't have any journalism training. So I'm not sure that I knew or appreciated that at the time, but retrospectively, I can see that without that, I, I wouldn't really have any of the stuff that I have. The other person who I've been very intrigued to be paired with is my office mate who works in the charity sector and doesn't do anything similar to what I do. But we support each other in a really interesting way where we both are able to bring things to each other's careers that the other one hasn't got any kind of clue about. And that's been a really, really lovely connection. I love those fresh perspectives. Yeah, that's that's so important, isn't it? It's a bit like the kind of role that I feel like my wife and I play on our, our different careers, just like as a sounding board that has no real day-to-day -day knowledge of what you're doing, but is it just brings a fresh pair of eyes and, you know, a thoughtful response and it's always helpful. That's great. Thank you, Rebecca. Those are, those are really good ones because mentorship does come in different forms i say it all the time on this podcast and it's lovely to hear the different types i like that kind of workmate that you have that's 
That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard I mean, that one before. No, it's great. I recommend it hugely. The other thing I would just say as, a, as an add-on to that is that what we've done is we rent this office together so neither of us have to work at home, which we started doing last Christmas after intense working at home with small children in the same place at the same time. And it's actually really quite affordable. It's really cheap. And it's made a big difference to our um, kind of solo working lives in the way that we have a colleague, but also that we have a space. And I strongly recommend that if you work by yourself, have a space ideally that isn't in your home. Great advice. And who would be the one person you'd like to be mentored by? I'd like to be mentored by somebody who writes amazing novels. So a kind of like a Margaret Atwood type person, because the itch I haven't scratched is fiction writing. And I would love to do that. And I'd love to kind of have the confidence to do it. But I think I probably also would really love to have somebody who would hold me to it because it's the accountability side of writing fiction. I mean, whether I'm any good or not is a whole other question, but the, the, actually, oh, I'm sure you would be. <laughs> the actually sitting down and doing it is really hard. And I think it's really hard if you want to do something that's like tangential to the career that you do. So people often say to me, oh, do you have a blog? And I'm like, no, because I write all day. Why would I want to write for fun as well? And so that's why fiction never really happens. So it would be good to have somebody who'd be like, right, where's that chapter? That would be really yeah. useful. And that's what mentors are really good at, I find, is asking the difficult questions, being very supportive, but also holding you to account. Like, so have you done that thing you promised me you said you would? You know, I think those sorts of things are really important. Yeah, although, I mean, I'm mainly thinking about Margaret Outward because I want her to tell me how she does it. And I'm not sure it works like that. But I really just want her to sit me down and be like, this is how you do it. And then I can be the next Margaret Outward. <laughs> if Margaret's listening, get in touch with Rebecca. <laughs> I mean, you you have had such success and I know you're only just getting started with your novels to come and, <laughs> and, and various other things. How do you want to be remembered at the end of your career? So I do this thing where I write down things that I want to be true. I write 10 things that I want to be true in 10 years time down most days. And they vary from, you know, I, um, some of them are true now and I still want them to be true. Like I have a great marriage. And others are like, I want my back not to hurt because I have a back problem that I'm trying to solve. So it's kind of like positive forward thinking. It's very, very effective. It's quite mind bending how effective it is. But one of the, the, the tenth thing I write is I help people live better through my work. And that's what I'd like to be remembered for in the long run. Like that I did some stuff which people found useful and allowed them to live better in some way, whether that's because... I wrote a really great recipe for tiramisu and they get to have that because, you know, I've written like thousands of recipes or whether it's because Solo or the Solo Collective were really helpful to them when they were working by themselves and really struggling. So that's that's what I want to be remembered for. And a decent parent. That would be good too. Yeah. Uh, that's Not really cooking that one up totally. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with that. Finally, Rebecca, for any solo workers listening to this episode, what one final piece of advice would you leave them with? Leave your desk right now and go and look at a tree. <laughs> get outside, get into nature. The way that the patterns, the fractal patterns that occur in nature and the chemicals which are released by things like trees, the way that they affect our nervous systems and the way that they soothe us when we've been overexposed to bright light and to short distances looking at screens and video calls and all of that stuff is really, really profound. So if you are in any sense struggling, walk away from the work, put it down, give yourself an hour, get into nature, even if that's just a park, even if it's just a tree outside your home on the suburban street where you live, which is very much what I have access to here. It will really help and try and do that as often as you can. 120 minutes 180 minutes? I can't remember which one it is now. I've said this so many times, I can't remember. A week is what we need in nature to recalibrate and undo some of the damage that the way that our modern lives are lived 
kind of works on our brains. So yeah, do that if nothing else. Awesome. Leave the Zoom and go see a tree. Go look that at a tree. That is a great place to end this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure. Really loved chatting and having you on the 40 Minute Mentor. And yeah, hope you have a awesome rest of the week and year and uh, excited to read the novel when that is eventually <laughs> written. <laughs> oh no, I'm going to have to do it now. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to me talk about myself, which is um, <laughs> loved it. a rare and loved lovely thing. Loved every minute of it. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.